Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Word Now. Word Now Productions, in association with the Fremont Center Theater and Eclipse One Media, present Word Now, a live storytelling show. Our evening was recorded live on Sunday, May 22nd, 2016, at the Fremont Center Theater at 100 Fremont Avenue in South Pasadena, California. To see an upcoming show or for more information, visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. Tonight's theme, War. This is Part 1. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to our fifth show of Word Now. Um, our theme tonight is war. And we're going to welcome our first storyteller. Our first storyteller is Fran de Leon. She's um, an actor, writer. And she shares an intimate account of how you can take the weight off a girl's body but you can't take the mindset out of the woman's psyche. In at war with the 15-year-old fat girl in my head. Fran <laughs> DeLeo. There is a fat girl in my head. And I know it sucks to have someone my size say something like that. When the fat girl takes over my mouth, I have pissed off my friends. I have come off as insensitive and self-obsessed. I got the red angry face emoji followed by a punch when I sent a text complaining about the place where my thigh meets my ass. I get it. If I was you listening to me, I would think and say the same things, but it's the fat girl who's gonna answer you and she is loud. <laughs> She says those regular uh, self-sabotaging things to me, like, uh, are you really gonna wear that? Change your pants, I can see your camel toe, even your hoo-ha's fat. <laughs> Don't bother going over your lines for that audition, they're never gonna pick you anyway. Everybody has more sex than you, he's gotta be getting it somewhere else. Don't write this story, you're gonna say too much, reveal too much, pick the wrong outfit for the show, have a vulnerability hangover in the morning, <laughs> dissect and despair over every single picture posted of you on Facebook, fall into a shame spiral and feel like complete and total shit. I told you she was loud. <laughs> See, she's only 15 years old, and she had um, always been this too skinny, scrawny, could eat anything and not gain anything kind of kid. So she doesn't understand what's going on with her body because suddenly, seemingly overnight, everything is growing, expanding sideways and outwards, but not upwards. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that growing, that was done. So she gets to keep this five and a half inch fun size stature, but she packs on over 30 pounds during the summer between sophomore and junior year. 
It happens so quickly, in fact, that she doesn't even really notice at first. You know, it's the late 80s, baggy and slouchy was the fashion. It was the perfect foil to hide what was going on underneath. But then suddenly, these raised white marks shaped like lightning bolts start to appear on her brown skin, thighs, and hips. And she overhears her mom on the phone to her aunt, sounding defensive, saying, no, 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 she's just feeling out. She's, uh, she's becoming womanly. <laughs> oh, womanly she became. Her bra, which up until now had been one step up from a training bra, was suddenly pinching her back and suffocating these full, overflowing breasts. In truth, the breasts were actually a nice byproduct of the whole weight gaining thing. She kind of assumed she'd be flat-chested like her sisters. And not-so-pleasant byproduct are family parties, where that not-so-pleasant cousin likes to greet her with, Whoa! Oh my god! <laughs> You look like you've doubled. It's like there are two of you. <laughs> or the more empathetic one. Oh, Franny, Sayang, it's too bad. You used to be so skinny. Now you're bachoy bachoy. Bachoy bachoy directly translates to fatso fatso. There are no coats of sugar in the Filipino family arsenal, only gigantic blankets of cariño brutal. Direct translation, brutal affection. <laughs> Things at school, they're also shifting. Um, she had been on the AP track, and now suddenly she's flunking chem lab with Bob Mabin and honors French with Madame Healy. She's got insomnia and this pounding in her ears that sounds like her heart that keeps her up till 4 a.m. So she's either absent the next day or shows up midway through, and uh, her she shows up disheveled, unable to button her uniform skirt that's become too tight. And all this leads to a beckoning to the counselor's office, who point blank asks her if she's pregnant. <laughs> Which is funny, because at 15 she's still a virgin, partly because she's choosing to be, but mostly because nobody's choosing her. There's one place that feels like solace. Carmen Hill's fifth period junior English class. Carmen's room was this veritable cocoon of creativity. She had allowed her students, past and present, to adorn the four walls with their renditions of famous artwork. And the standout, in this 15-year-old fat girl's opinion, is the one right by the front door against a blue backdrop, some student's impeccable ode to Botticelli. It's the birth of Venus, and it is beautiful. Venus stands naked, so confident in her own skin, her right hand resting on her chest, her left breast exposed to the elements, her long, wavy hair is blowing in that soft, wild wind, and her left arm gently escorts the ends to cover her seemingly hairless lady parts. Venus stands barefoot in this giant seashell, but her feet are unscathed. Her head is tilted, and she's got this distant gaze, devoid of longing and filled with strong, wistful content. Venus, that Venus, that visual somehow lends the 15-year-old fat girl some courage to put pen to paper, because that's how we used to write back then. <laughs> and she writes a poem about, of all things, a chicken egg. Uh, seemingly unpoetic, plain and hard, soft, uh, 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 softly cracked, 
But so filled with unborn potential, she calls it a parabola of promise. And Carmen chooses that poem to read in front of the entire class the next day with such reverence and respect that suddenly the 15-year-old fat girl knows what it's like to stand naked in a shell. See, that's the girl who I want to take over my thoughts and my mouth. That's the one that I should hold on to. Instead, I'm constantly at war with a 15-year-old fat girl in my head because the poem wasn't enough. The Fs, the absences, the tardies, the uniform infractions, those mattered more than any prettily placed words on paper. And although the administration let her finish her junior year, they told her she was not welcome to come back for her final year of high school. So at the next family gathering, the weight's not just on her body, and her uncle, a retired surgeon, from across the room says, Iha, why is your neck so big? Uh, you know, she's used to these body shaming comments by now. She just kind of shrugs it off. It does sting a little from this uncle, the nice uncle, the uncle that she had always wished was her dad. She comes over as he beckons her. He lifts his palsy-stricken hand, wraps it around her neck, calls her mother over and says, Stella, this child has a thyroid problem. And suddenly the veil is lifted. See, that hyperactive thyroid was responsible for the weight gain, the lack of focus, the insomnia, the pounding heart. She'd been tricked by her thyroid gland, and for at least two years, it owned her. But now, at 17, with a firm diagnosis and an appointment at Glendale Memorial, she arms herself with sodium iodide served up by a technician wearing a white hazmat suit complete with space helmet. She feels severely underdressed in a tank top, shorts, and flip-flops in this cocoon of convalescence where the only artwork are red and yellow radiation hazard signs on the wall. The spaceman opens a combination safe, removes a heavy silver cylindrical object and places it right in front of her, sticks a straw in the middle and motions for her to drink. <laughs> She does. It tastes like a melted wheelchair. <laughs> She'll have to give the toilet three flushes after every pee and stay away from babies and pregnant women for a week as the sodium iodide disintegrates and eliminates her thyroid. The last step is to the pharmacy to receive the bottle of small lavender pills, synthetic thyroid, which she'll need to take for the rest of her life. I don't actually start to lose the weight for another couple of years, not until I learn that if I just stop food from going in my mouth, I can stop her from talking. And when that doesn't work, a bottle of Jim Beam in one hand and a can of Coke in the other works just as well as earplugs. But after decades of knocking the shit out of my body to try to knock her out of my head, she's still there. She's still fighting. And I start to realize it's because she didn't get a chance to fight back then. She was robbed of any way to protect herself and fight for herself. And she is not going to let it happen again. But she's only 15 years old, so she gets confused as to who and how to fight. But I am not. So I need to get clear. I'm not going to fight her anymore. I'm not going to keep trying to shut her up. I'm not going to hold her picture as my little spoil of war of what I used to look like, the before to my after. She doesn't deserve that humiliation. She deserves my respect. She deserves to be heard. She deserves a, a fucking Botticelli print, which I will get 
and frame and put up in my office, right above my altar, across from my desk, and whenever she wants to come and visit me, she is welcome, because I will just lift my eyes and show her Venus in that shell and hope that it will lend her the courage to once again put pen to paper like she did so many years ago and write her story. And we'll call it Finding Peace with a 15-year-old fighter in my head. Thank you. Our next storyteller, uh, a favorite here at Word Now, is Cy Rosen. With apologies to Pat Benatar, it's not love that's the real battlefield. It's high school. Cy Rosen. I was thinking of going to my 50th high school reunion, which is kind of odd because I'm only 42 years old. <laughs> No, no, it's odd because for me, high school certainly wasn't the glory days. You remember the kid who walked through the halls and nobody knew who he was? I wish I was that kid. <laughs> I guess I kept thinking about my reunion because I somehow wanted to get a do-over. And if I could only redo one battle in the high school wars, it would be my embarrassing, humiliating, devastating date with Noreen Pepper. Noreen was one of the cool girls in school. She was a cheerleader and looked a little like Candace Bergen. In high school, everybody had to look like somebody else. In the right light, I kind of looked like Dustin Hoffman. The light might have been semi-darkness, but I'll take it. I remember calling Noreen to ask her out. You have to understand, I was really nervous and really goofy. So for some reason, I thought since Noreen was a cheerleader, it'd be kind of funny and cool to start off with a cheer. <laughs> hey, hi, this is Cy. It's our fate to go on a date. And maybe this date will be great. Give me a great. 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 Who is this, Noreen asked. Uh, Cy Rosen, I sit near you in English, biology, history, and algebra. I don't know who you are, she said. That's what I was hoping for, I joked. She didn't laugh. Anyway, I was wondering if you'd like to go out this Friday. Since I wasn't asking her out for Saturday night, where all the important dating took place, I figured I had a chance. Friday, she said? Uh, I don't know, maybe, I guess. OK, why not? She somehow managed to contain her excitement. Su surprisingly, the date started off fairly well. We went to see The Graduate because I was trying to keep the Dustin Hoffman thing alive. I tried to enhance this resemblance by finding different excuses to say, are you trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson? I think Noreen really liked the first 12 times I said it. After the movie, we went for a walk by this lake. The date was going so well that I started to imagine we'd go out a few more times, we'd go steady, and then I'd become part of the cool group. And they would give me a new nickname, The Dancer, which showed I knew my way around, that I had moves. And it was better than my current nickname, The Nose. It was not a very creative high school. <laughs> Just a side note about my nose, I had a really bad complex about it. So when I was 13, my folks took me to a plastic surgeon to see about a nose job. 
He said it wouldn't do any good because my nose was still growing. This was not great news. <laughs> I kept thinking, how big is this thing going to get? And why couldn't he be talking about my penis? <laughs> anyway, back to the lake. I was getting up the courage to put my arm around Nor uh, Noreen when this geese, suddenly, these geese suddenly emerged from the water and headed towards us, making these ominous pecking motions. We were being attacked. I don't know if any of you have ever been attacked by geese, but they are not the cute, lovable Disney creatures they are made out to be. They are evil. <laughs> I looked at the vicious geese, then I looked at Noreen, and then I ran. <laughs> I didn't run that far. Maybe about five feet, that's not that bad. And I kind of used Noreen as a shield. We didn't talk on the way home, and she definitely didn't try to seduce me. I know she told a few of her friends because I quickly got a new nickname. I was no longer the nose. I was now the dirty yellow coward. It was not a very creative high school. And sometimes when I walked down the hall, kids threw breadcrumbs at me. Okay, that was kind of creative. This event, this story has humiliated me for years. I've tried to lie about this story. I've tried to joke about this story. I've tried to pick up girls with this story. <laughs> Nothing's worked, especially the picking up girls part. But now I had a plan for redemption, to be a hero. I managed to track down Noreen and gave her a call. And this time, I wasn't going to start with a cheer. Hi, Noreen, you probably don't remember me. My name is Cyro. You ran away from the duck, she yelled. <laughs> They weren't ducks, they were geese, I replied. I'm not sure why I thought clarifying that point was a way of defending myself. <laughs> you used me as a shield as those ducks peck, peck, pecked at me, she complained. I'm sorry, I panicked. I, I thought you might have forgotten the uh, whole incident. No, I haven't forgotten the uh, whole incident, she mocked. As a matter of fact, my hubby and I use it as a kind of a code word. <laughs> A code word, I asked? Yes, whenever we're fighting, one of us says ducks and we start laughing. We realize we're lucky we ended up together. It could have been much, much worse. <laughs> so I've kind of helped your marriage. Yes, I guess you could say that, she begrudgingly agreed. Anyway, Noreen, our reunion is coming up and I may be going to it. Really, I'll have to get some breadcrumbs. I decided to ignore that comment and just plunge ahead with my plan. And if you're there, maybe we could go to the lake. Are you asking me on a date? Because I don't think my hubby would like that. No, I replied, my wifey wouldn't like it either. I just thought we could go for a walk, and if the birds attacked, I would have a chance to protect you. I'm pretty sure I'd come through this time. I don't think it would count if you knew the ducks were coming. That's a good point, Noreen, but very smart. Well, I was in the National Junior Honor Society, she proudly proclaimed. <laughs> I still have my pin. I thought I might wear it to the reunion if it's not too show-offy. No, Noreen, it's definitely not too show-offy. You should have it framed. <laughs> then I couldn't wear it, she replied. You're so right, Noreen. That's very astute of you. <laughs> well, I was in the National Junior Honor Society. <laughs> yeah, 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 we already established that. Your plan sounds weird. 
She was right, it was bizarre, but I was seeking redemption and I wasn't gonna stop. So I began to improvise. Maybe we could have somebody put a different animal by the lake. And that would count because it would surprise us. What kind of an animal, she asked. I don't know, I guess it could be a wild dog or something. But she, no, not that wild, semi-wild. I don't think I would trust you to protect me from a semi-wild dog. You didn't even protect me from a duck. You were the dirty yellow coward. You're right, that's true, that was my nickname. You have a good memory, Noreen. Well, I was in the National Junior Art Society. Yeah, 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 I got that. I don't want to go to the lake with you ever again, she said, ending my chance at redemption. Oh, okay, sure, I understand. Well, it was nice talking to you, Noreen. It was semi-nice, she replied as she hung up. I decided not to go to my high school reunion and therefore I won't have a chance to relive that part of my life and become a hero. However, I did come up with another plan. Late one afternoon after a couple of drinks, okay, after three drinks, I called Noreen again. I disguised my voice and told her I was on the executive board of the National Junior Honor Society. I said we reviewed her records and there was a mistake in her grade point average. We therefore had to revoke her membership and she would have to mail back her pin. Okay, that was kind of childish. I'm, I'm not sure that she believed me and it certainly wasn't an act of heroism. But for some reason I did feel redeemed. And they were geese, damn it. Storyteller is Annie Corson. Annie discovers the perils of speaking out. Annie, by the way, will be selling her book, Bargain Junkie, in the lobby. You can pay $10 and save $10,000. Our next storyteller, Annie Corson. I thought that was you. <laughs> The fabulous Wendy Hammers, everyone. Here are some highlights from my career as a Jewish American actress. A ja. <laughs> I read for a commercial, which I knew I would book because I had worked with the director, Stu Leskowitz, before, and he was looking for an Annie Corzin type. Sure thing, right? I do not get the job. Stu Lefkowitz hires a perky little blonde. I am too Jewish to play myself. <laughs> when they film the story of my life, my role will go to Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> then I go to this TV audition. Good morning, I'm Annie Corzin. I'm here to read for the role of the history professor. And the casting assistant thinks she's being cute and says, Mazel tov, darling, have a seat, enjoy. Now I get this shit all the time, but this young woman happens to be Chinese. She ought to be more sensitive. What would she think if I went, Oh, thank you. How you? How your family? 
Another time, my agent submits me for a movie, but the director, Harold Schlemansky, will not see me because he feels I'm too Jewish. Well, again, I hear this all the time, but this is for the role of a rabbi. <laughs> Schlemansky is only seeing Gentile actresses because, as he puts it, he wants to be sure that the character is likable. Let's face it. The only good news for Jewish women in the last century was William Jefferson Clinton. Think about it. <laughs> he risked his career, his marriage, and the stability of the United States government all for a sexual obsession with a dark-haired, zoftic Jewish girl. For this alone, he gets my vote! <laughs> So one night I went to this little theater where TV comedy writers read humorous essays, and a guy did a piece about a, ween, a whiny miskite, which is Yiddish for an ugly person. And the piece was called The Little Jap That Could, Jap meaning Jewish American princess. And then he reads the ugly, whiny little Jap's letters home from summer camp. I'm finally down to a size one, but these uniforms are lacking in flair and the counselors are really strict, whatever. <laughs> and the big joke is, the ugly little Jap he's talking about is Anne Frank and the summer camp is Auschwitz, get it? Now call me prissy. <laughs> But this material does not tickle my funny bones. He continues, that train ride really sucked. No air conditioning. We couldn't get near the bar car. Fortunately, it was an express. Arts and crafts is so boring. All we do is take gold out of teeth. And the scariest part is the audience is laughing. I just want to get up and run out, but I can't. I'm stuck up in the back somewhere. And suddenly, I hear these weird sounds, and it takes a moment before I realize that they're coming out of my mouth. <laughs> this is not funny. Get off the stage. You're an abomination. Abomination? Where did that come from? I didn't even know I knew that word. <laughs> it sounds so biblical. <laughs> the show stops, I get angry stares from the audience, but nobody backs me up, and the comic finishes his act to rousing applause. The next day I call my friend Howard. And Frank, I'm nauseous, nauseous. But don't you worry, everything that goes around comes around, and that little putz has given him a shitload of bad karma. I know Howard means well, but I don't really buy into that karma crap. A lot of evil is not only unpunished, but rewarded. Pat Robertson is worth $30 million. <laughs> I'm so depressed about the whole experience that I medicate myself by spending a week in bed watching Friends reruns. Much to my surprise, 
the producers of the show, invited me to return in a couple of weeks and do a piece explaining my behavior. Now, you may wonder why I would even consider going back to that place. That's because you're not a performer. <laughs> Someone is giving me a chance to take center stage. I will be witty and charming and poignant, and everyone will love me and agree with my point of view. Not quite. When the word of my scheduled appearance gets out, I start getting emails from the comics and his friends. You will be forced off stage in the ugliest way possible, you fascist crone. You will die bitter and alone, you humorless hag. I'd like to kick you in your withered cunt. And then the messages start to get nasty. <laughs> you are the living personification of why Jewish men have contempt for Jewish women. Oh, great, so now it's all my fault. <laughs> what should I do? Should I cancel? I mean, I am not a brave person. As a matter of fact, I am afraid of just about everything. You see a beach, I see shark attacks. You see a pimple, I see melanoma. All I've ever wanted is for everyone I love to stay in the house. <laughs> because it's a dangerous world out there. What have I gotten myself into? But I finally decided that, in spite of the threats, I would indeed re-enter the lion's den. I may be a scaredy cat, but I'm also a stubborn bitch, and I didn't want to see the bad guys win. I couldn't sleep or eat for the weeks preceding the event, which is great because I lost some weight. <coughs> we got extra police patrol in case of a disturbance, and the theater placed a big, burly bodyguard to the side of the stage. Don't you just love showbiz? I spoke. I told them I believe comedy is an art, and art is supposed to make you feel good about being alive, and that comics piece made me want to kill myself. And then I revealed that my family is distantly related to Anne Frank. This is a lie, I made it up, but who gives a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Some people applauded, others still accused me of censorship. I don't really I think I changed anybody's mind, but the good news is I did not get beaten up. I don't know if Howard was right about that karma crap. I don't know if that comic died a hideous and untimely death. Deep in the recesses of my heart, I like to think so. <laughs> but the night I presented my case was the first time I ever participated in a spoken word event. I've done it countless times since, 
and I've taught other people how to do it. And this format has become my most powerful and satisfying and profitable creative outlet. So who knows, maybe that was my karma. Or maybe there's sometimes a reward if you're dumb enough to stand up and speak out. Thank you. my teachers, so I was told that I forgot to introduce myself. So, um, I am Jill Remez, I, thank you, and I am one of the producers of Word Now, my co-producer is Mike Lachey on All Things Technical, and the Fremont Center Theater, which is Lisa Reynolds and Jim Reynolds, so, here we go. Our first storyteller um, for the second half is Pablo Mars. Pablo is an actor, improviser, teacher, and storyteller. He's the creator and producer of the popular storytelling show called Tell It. And if you have a chance, please go out and see it and support his show. It's wonderful. And he is so inspired by all the wonderful talent here tonight. Pablo Mars. Thank you. This is called Peter Pan in Vegas. Coming of age in the sexually promiscuous 70s was like the line from the movie Moulin Rouge, a spectacular spectacular. The drug-infused counterculture of the 60s, the women's movement, and the gay rights movement all came together like an orgy at Studio 54. We were liberated from society's traditional rites of passage like marriage and raising a family. Being gay and an actor meant that I was hyper-liberated. I wasn't going to marry, have kids, or work. <laughs> Hell, I was Peter Pan. I won't grow up, I won't grow up until the 80s and then came AIDS. Suddenly, Peter Pan was in a battle with an evil far worse than Captain Hook. For over a decade, starting in 81, I lost at least two people each year. It was a war, soldier after soldier being killed, including my handsome and gifted brother, Robert. Robert was 32 when he died, two weeks after I turned 40. I wanted to have the big, you know, traditional big 4-0 birthday party, and I wanted Robert to be there but he was way too sick. I was in denial, angry and crushed. I couldn't accept one more death. So I went ahead and had the party, just to say fuck you to the universe. Robert passed away in May of 92 during the weekend of the riots. LA was under a curfew, so I was trapped in my tiny guest house trying to comfort a friend on the phone while the city was in flames. My brother was facing his last days on earth and I couldn't be there to say goodbye. I live in a constant state of grief for 12 years, numb, like I was moving underwater. 
I was drafted into becoming an AIDS activist and served as a battlefield medic, caring for the wounded, cleaning up vomit and shit, and watching friends waste away and die. It was a brutal realization of my own mortality. One slip up, one careless encounter, and it could have easily been me. Yet somehow, I survived. And after Robert's death, I was sure that I would never have to face a nightmare like that again or lose another younger sibling. On January 21st, 2009, I got an emergency phone message from my cousin Letty. The Las Vegas Police Department had called her after breaking into my youngest brother Mario's house to find a contact number. Mario's truck had crashed at the construction site of the M Resort just outside of Vegas. I panicked and I started pacing the house. Uh, uh, this, everything will be fine. He, he, he wasn't in the truck. Somebody stole it. He's going to call and everything's going to be fine. I immediately called my brother and it went straight to voicemail. I called the Vegas PD and was told that I should call back tomorrow and speak to the detective who was in charge of the case. Call back tomorrow? I'm supposed to wait to hear if my brother is dead? My heart started pounding in my chest and I called Mario over and over again, getting his voicemail each time. The next day, the detective said that they had to order a DNA test to confirm the identity of the bodily remains found in the truck. I booked a flight to Vegas for my mom and me. My father was too fragile to make the trip. His body was breaking down from type 2 diabetes. He also died in November of that year. Again, I sank into that numbing fog of grief. It was life during wartime, all over again, struggling through each day just to keep my sanity intact. According to the police report, my brother was driving drunk, speeding around the M Resort construction site at about 1 AM. Bulldozers and other heavy equipment were placed in various locations around the property. He came upon an access road with no lighting or signage and plowed into an earth mover. The last time I'd seen my brother was a month earlier when he was in LA, visiting family during the holidays. Mario was good looking, smart, rough around the edges, loved family, played a mean bass guitar, drove a Harley, owned a gun, and had a huge collection of Beanie Babies. <laughs> we all got to see him one last time. It was an honest-to-God Christmas miracle bestowed upon a totally agnostic and atheist family. When we arrived in Vegas, I tried to be the good soldier and keep up a brave front for my mom as the burly detective described the accident. I could barely look into her eyes the whole day, afraid that I would lose it if I saw her pain. But she was a rock. She took it all in as only a mother could. My mind reeled thinking about the crash and what Mario must have felt. Weeks later, after the police report was completed, I found out the truck exploded on contact and Mario died instantly. When I read the details of what was discovered at the scene, I almost fainted. And I've never shown the report to anyone else in my family. At the Vegas coroner's office, the kind female technician gave us Q-tips to swipe the inside of our cheeks. It would be a few days before the DNA results would be known. But what was there to wait for? We knew he was gone. 
It was almost the end of the day, and we still had to go to the house to get some papers before flying back to LA. The cops had padlocked the front door, so we had to wait for a detective to let us in. As we stood outside, my brother's occasional girlfriend, Erica, drove up. I hadn't seen her in a long time. She had cut her hair and dyed it red, so I didn't recognize her when she pulled up to the house. I thought she was the detective. So I started to explain our situation. Um, we have to fly out tonight, so we're kind of in a hurry. And then I realized who I was talking to, and I choked. She hadn't heard the news. My mind scrambled to find a way to tell her what happened. I took a breath, it got it out, and Erica broke down. When the detective showed up, Erica agreed to stay and help us locate things in the house. Thank God, Mario was so well organized. All his bills, bank statements, insurance papers, phone numbers, mementos, and journals were all noted and filed, and in one place. I thought, geez, if I die suddenly, it would take the CIA to sort out all my shit. <laughs> For the next year, I served as the executor of Mario's estate. I was the general, making all the decisions, trying to survive the shock and PTSD. I'd never see Mario alive again, but through all his documents and possessions, I became closer to my brother than ever before. It was surreal, months of tracking down his friends to tell him what happened, closing accounts, mailing out death certificates, making the cremation arrangements, planning the memorial service, reading through his notes and journals, and sorting out Mario's things. If anybody needs a beanie baby, see me after the show. <laughs> Some days I could go for hours. Other times, it was 10 minutes before I'd collapse into a sobbing mess on the kitchen floor. At night, I would pace my backyard, trying to calm myself with deep breaths while chain-smoking cigarettes, wondering who I could call at midnight to talk me down from a panic attack. Casual conversations had to be short for fear that my mind would wander and I'd start crying. I made a dozen trips to Vegas that year to pack up the house, do some repairs, and find a new tenant. Those trips to Sin City were emotionally devastating and yet somehow therapeutic. The four-hour drive became a sanctuary from being home alone with my thoughts. The majestic views of the desert are like snapshots of the infinite cosmos to which we all return. And nothing heals the heart faster than gambling away your money, <laughs> drunken tourists, and cheesy Elvis impersonators. So, is this Peter Pan all grown up? Mostly. I never imagined that growing up would mean facing the loss of so many people in my life. This is the real world, not Neverland, but life is good. I'm happy and I'm okay because when he has to, Peter Pan can fly. Our next storyteller is Sam Fierstein. He's a five-time Moth Slam winner. He performs at storytelling shows around the U.S. and Canada, and his stories have been featured on CBS Radio Storytellers... Hmm. Storytelling Show. KCRW's 
and fictional. <laughs> it's typed. Um, <laughs> Sorry, KCRW is on Fictional and Strangers, and he can regularly be heard on AD on the air on iHeartRadio. It's typed. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, Sam Fives, Beersby. It's Firestein. something really regrettable. <laughs> In July of 1997, I went with a buddy to the Grand Canyon. And it was while we were there, we found out that uh, it's, the place is littered with these warning signs that describe all the different ways that the Grand Canyon will kill you. <laughs> of which there are so many. It, is, like, it, it kills like a dozen people a year. And so the only thing I can think to do is, is to mock it. And so in front, I go, hey, Scott, get a picture of me. And I collapse, and I'm laying fake dead in front of one of the signs. And, and it's while Scott's getting the picture of me that this woman starts screaming because she thinks I'm really dead, which was awesome. And it was also all that I needed, all the encouragement, my very, very young maybe slightly robbed of oxygen brain, needed to then decide and declare, I am going to get my picture taken like this everywhere I go. <laughs> and I'm really, really sorry to report that I did. I did it everywhere I went, including August of 2000, Cairo, Egypt, Great Pyramid of Giza. And I'm standing there thinking, I gotta get the picture. I gotta get the picture. Which most people would say like, oh, Sam, that is like a phenomenally bad idea. <laughs> and they would be right. Except, in my defense, and I have one. <laughs> it's very thin. But it was 2000, right? The halcyon days of 2000. It was a different world, a very, very different world. And maybe even more importantly at that moment, if there was one thing that I'd really come to understand about the Egyptian people in the 12 hours that I had been in country, <laughs> I had come to know this. They know comedy. <laughs> and I knew this. I, I knew this. Because an hour earlier, I was standing in downtown Cairo, staring up at the marquee above a theater, 
wasn't even a marquee, it was a billboard, a huge billboard with giant caricatures on it of Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Vernon Jordan, Linda Tripp, and towering above all of them was this monstrous caricature of Monica Lewinsky in the Gap dress, complete with presidential caricature stain on it. I'm in Cairo, right? And my guide, this kid Tamir, like he was around my age, he was 26 years old, right? And he's laughing, he goes, it is a play, it is the comedy, all sold out for a year, all very famous in all of Egypt. It's called Clinton and the Blue Dress. I'm like, I have flown halfway around the world to escape this. And here I am, and he's laughing. He's going, your president, he makes the sex with a girl. And he, can't, and he starts laughing because he can't even get the words out. And I'm like, I know, I know, believe me. I know. So excuse me. For an hour later, with a head full of Clinton and the big dress, to be standing at the pyramids thinking, I got to get my stupid picture, right? And so I tell Tamir, now keep in mind, Tamir is a college graduate with a degree in history. He is a licensed guide, like this is his career. And I got to bet, I don't know how many hundreds of tourists he has brought to the pyramids, but I will bet that I am the only one that ever said, all right, this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna take my camera, and I'm gonna run out there, and I'm gonna lay there dead. And he's like hearing me, listening to me, describe how I'm gonna lay dead in front of the pyramids, and he was gonna take my picture. He goes, no, 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 very bad idea. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 trust me, I do it everywhere, it's awesome. And I just, I jam my camera into his hands, and I run out in the middle of the plaza. And it's, the, the pyramids, if you have them in there, there's this giant plaza and it's swarming with tourists. There's like a thousand people there. It's the height of the tourist season. And I run out into the middle of it and I collapse like I've been shot. <laughs> and I'm laying there and I'm thinking, this is awesome. This is going to be the greatest picture I ever get. This is amazing. And it's while I'm laying there like really pleased with myself that I hear like there's a commotion and there's yelling in Arabic. And then I hear it. And it's the unmistakable sound of metal ratcheting. And I open my eyes and I am staring up into six fully automatic assault rifles pointed at me, courtesy of the Egyptian tourist police. And I just went cold, like my body, it just shut down. And my hands opened slowly, and I just started muttering, American, 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 as if that was some sort of like white flag that would say, no, no, everything's okay. <laughs> And I could see Tamir was off in the side, and he's like walking over very slowly. And they kicked my backpack away. They flipped me over. They frisked me. 
And then the next thing I know, I'm getting pulled off the ground and escorted out of the pyramids, surrounded by armed police officers. And I don't know why. Right, like, and the cop, like this, I'm surrounded by cops, but there's the one in front that he's obviously the leader, and he is just walking angry, and I can tell from the back, and I'm looking at him, like, what have I done? Like, I was just, I was like laying on the ground, and you were getting a picture. Like, what happened? And, but they get us out, right? They take us far away, past these buildings, like past where the bathrooms are. They clear us out of where the pyramids are. And then this guy, he just turns to Tamir and he starts screaming at him. Like he wants to know what the hell is going on. And Tamir tries to explain to him. He's like, you know, telling him it's like, you know, my American client and he was taking joke picture. And whenever, we, and this is all going down in Arabic, but when he heard the word joke, this guy, he just lost his mind. He exploded. He's like, ah, and he's screaming at Tamir in Arabic. And I'm like, what did I, like, what, 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 what happened? And I like start asking the guy and he just, screams at me to shut up. I guess that's what he said. And he's just screaming at Tamir. And I'm like, what is happening? What did I do? And Tamir's trying to translate. You know, but I'm just getting words. It's like bits and pieces, like a word here, word there, like Luxor and Jihad and tourists and murder. And it hit me. Like it all came crashing down on me. I knew exactly what he was talking about. In 1997, Islamic jihadists wanted to start a civil war and overthrow the government. But how do you overthrow the Egyptian government? Well, their idea, their plan was to collapse the Egyptian economy. The single most important component of the Egyptian economy is tourism. Something like one and a half to almost 2% of the world travel budget is spent in Egypt every year by tourists. It's a monstrous number, like nothing brings more money into the country than tourism. So how do you collapse the government? You kill the economy. How do you kill the economy? You kill tourism. How do you kill tourism? You kill tourists. And that's exactly what they did. They went to Luxor, the number two most traveled to spot in Egypt, and they slaughtered 62 tourists, Germans, Americans, Japanese, people from all over the world. They just gunned these people down. And it was then that the Egyptian government started the tourist police. And now here I am, <laughs> funny guy, laying dead at the number one reason why people travel to Egypt. And whereas I'm just thinking I'm a guy laying on the ground getting a stupid picture, what this cop sees is a body and a backpack, which are the two worst things you can see there. And he is pissed and he's out for blood. And he starts screaming at Tamir and he's going off on him and he's yelling and I feel horrible because it was just like, it, I, it was just stupid on my part. It was just my stupid thing. And then Tamir goes, he wants my license. Oh. Like, I've been in country 12 hours. I'm creating international incidents, and now I'm destroying this guy's career. And I'm like, I am such an 
idiot. I am so sorry. And I stepped in front of Tamir because I couldn't let this cop, I couldn't let him take his license, at least not without a fight. And I just stepped in front of him. I go, no, me, me. It was my stupid joke. I'm sorry. I'm just, he's good. He's good. I'm stupid. I'm st just, you know, stupid American joke, a stupid American joke, me, stupid. And I'm watching and I'm saying this and I just, I see something. And I don't know if what I'm seeing is what I'm seeing. So I try, I'm like, stupid American, stupid American. And, and I, I realized, like, he loves hearing me say, stupid American. And when I see it, I was like, oh, it's just like creating like the little bit of softness, right, right in this guy. Like, it's getting through. And so I sell it, right? I'm a stupid American, stupid. I'm sorry, please don't. No, not him. And I just go off. Like, I am going. Because I really can't let this happen to him. You know, he's a good kid. And, you know, somebody with like a job like his where he works 50, 60, 70 hours a week, what they work, maybe he brings home three or $4,000 a year if he's really lucky, you know? And so I have to try to protect him as much as I can. And I'm begging, please, 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 stupid. And I sell it and I sell it until, and I, and, and the guy, like, I'm not gonna, unless he shoves me away, I'm not moving, right? And after long enough, he just, I don't know if I wore him out or what, but he just took that step back, gave that same heavy sigh my high school principal gave me over <laughs> and over and over. And he just finally went like that, which is the universal sign of get the hell out. And we did. We got the hell out. But as we were leaving, see, the worst thing to happen is not for me to get into trouble, but for me to almost get in trouble. Because then it starts to get a little funny to me. And as we're walking out, I start getting the question. And I have to know. I have to know. But the other side's saying, do not ask. Do not, don't, don't ask. But I got to know. I, I got to know. Don't, yes, now, ask. Did you get the picture? No. <laughs> yes, I got the picture. Yes, he got the picture. But this was in the pre-digital camera days. So it was six weeks before I actually got to develop the picture. And it's horrible. It was like the worst picture. And you can't even, there's like a big pyramid and this dot on the ground. That's me. It's awful. It's awful. But I still had five days with Tamir. And he was my private guide. It was just us. And, I was, and he hated me. Hated me. And so at the end of that first day, I gave him a huge tip because if there is one thing that I have learned in all of my travels, nothing says I'm sorry <laughs> like money. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, our next storyteller is Christopher Brune Horan. A clandestine trip to New York City allows our hero to step out into the light. And just to let you know, Christopher with his husband is the co-founder of Bada Bing Bada Boom, 
True Stories Told for Cash, happening every second Thursday in West Hollywood. Check it out, another wonderful show. Welcome, Christopher Bernhardt. I'm 16 years old, and I am negotiating in the lobby of a strip club with a man who calls himself Mr. Jack-Jack. <laughs> so I can lose my virginity in a sleazy backstage room. I have snuck down to New York City, two and a half hours south on the short line bus with my best friend George, who I am in love with. But he doesn't know it. We are told that we can each have the dancer of our choice and a private room for $90 each. $90 for a 16-year-old to lose his virginity with a stripper. It seems like quite the deal. <laughs> My heart is racing. My adrenaline is pumping. So why does this feel so horribly wrong? I was fighting very hard not to be gay. Definitely at war with my urges. I had already had a lifetime of feeling different and being bullied because of it. Starting in fifth grade, when I picked up the phone for the first time and people started mistaking me for my mother. <laughs> people who should have known better, like my dad. <laughs> who I was becoming was definitely clashing with who people wanted me to be. I had an elementary school music teacher tell me that little boys don't play the flute when I wanted to play it, and instead told little boys play the trumpet and the drums. I was mortified. I didn't want to play the trumpet or the drums. I ended up playing the clarinet because that's what the kid standing next to me was playing. I didn't even know what one was. It's a small town in New York State where sports and football rule. I'm the youngest of three boys, and ever since I got lost playing hide-and-seek with my cousin John, and I realized, I don't really want us to be found, you know? <laughs> I, I knew that I was gay. People told me constantly. People told me in hallways, out car windows, in gym class. Teachers told my parents at conference night when they said things like, Christopher spends a lot of time talking to girls, and he needs more friends that are boys, and other things that sent my poor dad into a tailspin. He didn't want me to not fit in. By high school, I had learned to do just that. I played sports, I lifted weights, I ran, but most importantly, I kept my secret entirely to myself. In high school, my buddy George, he had a girlfriend, but he spent every weekend at my house. All this girl wanted to do was have sex with him. But for some reason, he was holding out. When I broached my idea about a Holden Caulfield, Catcher in the Rye, adventure to New York City to lose our virginity, he leapt on it instantaneously. This made my colossal crush on him only worse. Why didn't he just have sex with his girlfriend? What was he hiding that a prostitute wouldn't reveal? Maybe he was like me. Had he also been dodging and shifting around in his makeout sessions with girls, petrified that a fumbling hand would land on an obviously not hard penis? <laughs> What's wrong, the girls would ask me. Are you okay? 
I would cover with anything from a stomach ache to Catholicism. <laughs> Knowing full well that this was another girl that I was never gonna call again, number seven or eight on a sexual amends list that was way far ahead in my future, I was always hoping that something would stir in my pants. I wasn't cruel, I really liked these girls. Two weeks ago, I had hoped that it was Marlene Hessleitner. To this day, I have never seen a better high school name. At the, <laughs> at the cast party, after the final show, I pulled her aside for some carefully orchestrated time alone so I could finger bang her and gauge just how I felt. Sad and like I needed an antibacterial hand wipe. <laughs> the idea of an escapade alone with George in New York City completely made my heart sing. Plus, I figured if it didn't work out, we would still be virgins, and at the end of the night, we would be back at home in my bedroom. Win-win, right? <laughs> <clears throat> we clutched our tickets in sweaty palms, paranoid that somebody would see us boarding the bus. Finally, two and a half hours later, there we were, Times Square, in front of the strip club that I had previously scoped out, the one with the neon sign that shouted, live, nude, girls, which I figured was better than dead, nude, girls. <laughs> this strip club also offered a porno movie called Little Oral Annie, which... <laughs> Thankfully, I never got to see. <laughs> this is the thing. I knew that these dancers would go all the way with you if you paid for it and if you rented a room in the back. I had been sneaking down to Manhattan since I was in eighth grade, so I knew the lay of the land. I also knew this because that's what the male dancers did around the corner at the Gaiety Theater, which I had been sneaking into a little bit on my own. That's another story. This story is about the female club, and I was here because I was hoping that a pro would fix me. We paid our $8 entry, and in through the turnstile we went. It was dark and dingy, and there were men everywhere. George became euphoric and elated, which immediately I did not like. <laughs> the strippers were up on stage. We took our seats, and I looked around, and I knew that I was not like these men and the reality was sinking in. Their jaws were wide open, their hands were disappeared into their lap. I was concerned for these girls. Were they actresses? Were they runaways? What were they doing on the stage? Nothing, nothing was stirring in my pants. Finally, after what seemed like an outbreak of blondes and breasts and vagina, the announcer called Baby, and this very different girl came to the stage. She was dark, and she was distant, and she was, if possible, as uninterested as I was. <laughs> she kept her eyes riveted on the ceiling. She refused to pay to the crowd. I thought, that is my girl. <laughs> Afterward, in the lobby, Mr. Jack-Jack waved us over. He knew a couple of easy marks when he saw them. We negotiated, which meant he said $90, and we said yes, and so that was that. The next thing I knew, I was looking at George's back walk away. Suddenly, I was in this sad little side room off of the main venue with a 
bare mattress on the floor and an apple crate with a lamp with a light bulb with no shade. Pure Charles Dickens squalor. <laughs> All that was missing was a crust of bread. <laughs> I could hear as George, the object of my every secret carnal desire, lost his virginity quite loudly with a German explosion called Daisy just opposite the wall to my right. My heart could barely stand it. This was my last ditch effort. Baby looked like Coco from Fame. I had seen it 14 times. <laughs> she looked at me and she smiled and I lifted her chin and I kissed her. It was sweet, which I knew was probably wrong, so I pressed down hard with passion. I grabbed her and I took her pretending that she was George. Not the stripper crushing George in the next room, but the one who came to my house after practice and asked me for a t-shirt to borrow. I couldn't get past my nerves, the voices of coaches, of brothers, of God, the pressure exploding inside of my head that made everything go limp down below in my loins. It sucked because I truly believed that if I couldn't perform with baby, that I might as well just pack it in. I would be gay, a social pariah. What I'd been told was the lowest of the low. Finally, I stopped. I couldn't avoid her hands any longer. Nothing she did made a difference. My dick was a dismal wreck. <laughs> there was nothing to do but just roll off of her and crumble in a ball at her feet. Are you gay? She asked me in a voice so soft. Suddenly she was my mother. Yes! <laughs> I said it immediately. It, it flew out of my mouth. I couldn't contain it anymore. I was so tired I couldn't take it. I just waited for her judgment and her sneers. It's okay, she said. It's okay. And with her hand, she dismissed my angst so succinctly, I had no other choice but to believe her. She was wise to the future. Suddenly, I could hear out the window, taxis and laughter and night, a metropolis filled with possibility. George was finally quiet. It was okay. It was the best $90 that I ever spent. Baby showed me that it is okay. Thank you. Christopher Brun Horan. And the last storyteller tonight is me. <laughs> so I don't have to read an intro, which I will blow. Okay. You know the commandment, love thy neighbor? It's not one of the top 10, but it's a big one. <laughs> well, I'm pregnant, and we find the best house. It's a cute, tiny 1920s Spanish on the edge of a really nice neighborhood. It has a beautiful, lush yard with an apple tree. And we can't wait to put in a swing set. The side of the house is lined with beautiful rose bushes. The local elementary school is good, and we find out that a bunch of kids live in the neighborhood. It's perfect. Until the day we discovered we're living next door to Satan. 
A week after we move in on a pleasant Sunday afternoon, we hear the explosion of loud, angry, profanity-laced screaming coming from, the next, coming from next door, followed by blasting loud classic rock. I thought our neighbor was a sweet old man named Jack, whose family has lived in the house since the 20s. But after checking with the other cowering neighbors, <laughs> We find that Jack's 45-year-old nephew, Timothy, lives there too. We try to ignore him, but I'm worried. I'm going to have this baby any minute. And his, his outbursts are intermittent, and I'm hoping maybe he'll get some meds. But on the night we bring our precious newborn home from the hospital, Timothy is having a screaming, drunken fit and blasting Fleetwood Mac at full volume. Now, I'm already scared and overwhelmed with a new baby, and I have to deal with this. I look at my husband. What are we going to do? Well, let me tell you, there isn't a lot you can do. Along with his random tirades, that monster ends up ruining every outdoor gathering we try to have. The evil one has a screaming profane fit during our son's first birthday party. My friend Mark jokes, what's with the Tourette's? <laughs> and then quickly gathers his family and leaves, as does everyone else at the party. I mean, I don't blame them. I don't want to be around that either. Old infirm Jack tries to intervene, but he is no match for the Prince of Darkness. We put up with Voldemort living next door to us for over two years. We want to move, but we can't sell our home with El Diablo next door. To top it off, we don't even have a fence between our properties, just a few stupid skippy rose bushes. We plant hedges in front of our bedroom windows, which face his property, and hunker down in our bunker and hope he will just go away. I mean, maybe he'll die. I mean, Antonin Scalia just died. <laughs> Once in a while, the police show up for the police show up for a variety of reasons, loud music on his surprisingly good stereo system, a fight on the sidewalk, or most horribly, physically abusing his elderly uncle. We just cower in our home, praying he doesn't think we're the ones who called the authorities. Inevitably, by the time the LAPD show up, he's calming down and only blasting Enya. <laughs> yep, Enya. Then poor old Jack is taken to a nursing home and things get worse. The demon starts using our names during his tirades. He even screams my toddler's name. I beg my husband, you have to do something. Trust me, it will only make matters worse. Well, how much worse can it get? He looks at me. I'm five foot six, I wear glasses, I'm Jewish. I don't confront people. <laughs> And that is why I love my husband. <laughs> but you see, I have a temper. And the hate has been brewing in me for a long time. I have never hated anyone like this. I hate him more than the mean girls in junior high. I literally want to kill this man. I actually contemplate hiring a hitman. I just don't know how to do it. <laughs> And let me tell you, it's a good thing I don't have access to firearms, because I would be in jail right now, which is why we need gun control. <laughs> the depth of my hatred is starting to scare me. How far will hate push me? 
And that is when the incident with the gardener's green bag happens. It's about one o'clock in the morning, right outside our bedroom window, he who will not be named grumbles and shouts about a bag of leaves left on his side of the invisible property line. Well, that's the straw. I, I can't take it. I go ballistic. My husband tries to stop me. Jill, no! <laughs> as I throw on my clothes and I head out the door. It's dark as I round the corner of the house and I see the outline of Mephistopheles, who, by the way, looks a lot like Henry Waxman. And if you don't know what Henry Waxman looks like, That's Henry Waxman. But I become a crazed lunatic. I, I, I scream at him, shut the fuck up, you motherfucker. You just shut the fuck up. <laughs> and he instantly stops his tantrum and calmly explains that my gardener left the bag on his property and he really preferred that it were moved. I just stand there dumbfounded listening to this suddenly rational person explaining this to me, the screaming idiot, in the middle of the night. Bewildered, I, I, I say, oh, okay. And I go home. But still, I have confronted the beast. Well, my little explosion opens the floodgates. Now the barrage is constant. I won the battle, but I am losing the war. The king of hell has fits virtually every day and blasts the Eagles or the Doobie Brothers or fucking Boston at all hours. He calls out my husband's name, trying to get him to come over and fight. My calm, pacifist husband doesn't have to say, I told you so, the pussy. <laughs> Everything comes to a head one hot summer day when we come home to find Timothy on our front porch, shirtless, stumbling drunk, with his hands dripping blood and pounding on our front door. Blood is everywhere. My husband, finally grows a set of balls. And from the safety of the sidewalk screams, get away from our house, Timothy. Get away. Go home. Which is kind of hot. <laughs> anyway, a neighbor calls the police, and the king of evil is arrested. And by the way, Timothy told the police he was just there because he needed a Band-Aid. Oh. Really. But it's not over. He's only gone for three days. And that's it. Something has to be done. I figure out how to contact the family. I find out that he's living there because he has inherited one-fourteenth of the property. One-fourteenth, for God's sakes. The family is too scared to kick him out. They won't even visit him without a bodyguard, their giant ex-cop friend who tells us to stay away from him because who knows if he's armed? And I'm the idiot screaming at him in the middle of the night. But I'm on a tear. I turn up the heat. I threaten, if you don't get rid of this monster, I will sue you and I will get your house. 
My hatred is turning me into a crazed beast. My sweet, level-headed, always in possession of his faculties, husband, calmly takes the phone and reassures the family member that we aren't going to sue anyone, but he can get them in touch with a lawyer. That could help them. They take him up on the offer, and Operation Get the Devil Out starts. It takes another nine months to finally evict Beelzebub. The lawyer, a family friend, provides reconnaissance so we know if the shit is going to hit the fan. And thanks to the lawyer, we know the exact day Lucifer is forced to surrender and move out. We are so scared, we choose to stay in a hotel that night. I mean, who knows what he might do? And FYI, thanks to us, the family is able to sell the property at the height of the housing boom, and the Prince of Darkness receives a cool $50,000 for his 114th share. Thank you very much. And after three years of terror, we finally come home to our peaceful little house. The war is over. And the, for the first time in a long time, we aren't afraid. Finally, we can speak in our house without comments from Timothy. We can go into our yard without hearing a tirade. We can have friends over to visit. My son can have a play date. We are free, and we want to celebrate. And we get a bottle of champagne, and we toast our freedom. We toast the lawyer. We toast our perseverance and each other. We toast our property value. <laughs> And my hatred that for so long had been my companion is starting to fade. And then I think, wait, are, are we party to someone getting kicked out of their home? Should I feel sorry for this man? And I wonder, was it all-consuming hatred that turned Timothy into the monster he became? Is he a victim of his insanity as much as I was? And I raise my glass high, and I wish for Timothy complete and total annihilation. Fuck him. He ruined my life for three years. <laughs> what can I say? Hate is a very strong emotion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for coming out to Word Now. And thank you for being a part of our fifth uh, show. Please listen to the podcast, share it with your friends, wordnowstories.com. Most importantly, I want to thank my co-producer, Mike Lachey. If it weren't for him, none of the technical stuff would be possible. We wouldn't have a podcast. Thank you to Carrie Dearborn, who takes care of our lights. Without her, we'd be in darkness. Thank you to Lisa and Jim for the Fremont Center Theater in this beautiful venue. And thank you to all of you for coming out on a Sunday night. And um, don't forget to tune in uh, on July 17th for the theme of independence. Thank you and all our storytellers. This is Michael Lache from Eclipse One Media at ECLIPSE dash one dot com eclipse one new media for a bold world our evening of storytelling was recorded live 
at the Fremont Center Theater at 100 Fremont Avenue in South Pasadena, California. To see an upcoming show or for more information, visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. Tonight's theme, war. Thank you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.